what would you do for the assurance of salvation? What would you give? What length would you go to? What price would you pay to know for sure that you are saved? In the early 1500s, a German monk was willing to pay a great price and go to an extreme length to find assurance for his salvation. His name, Martin Luther. As a young man, Luther was plagued with doubt. He fasted. He prayed for hours on end. He went to confessionals and confessed his sin to a priest for many hours at a time. He even took a whip and whipped his own back in hopes that it would purge him of his sin and make him feel saved, but none of these things gave him any assurance, and so he took it to the next level. He took a pilgrimage to the holy city, Rome, a journey from Germany of about 900 miles, which of course wasn't very easy in his day. And after arriving at the holy city, he knew exactly where he wanted to go. He went directly to the Scala Sancta, a translated holy steps. According to tradition, these holy steps, these 28 steps, were the same steps that Jesus ascended when he went to be judged by Pilate. And tradition held that if you climb these steps on your knees, once you reach the top step, you would be assured of going to heaven. So Luther got down on his knees and started climbing each stony, rough step. And with each step, he kissed it and he recited the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. At each step, the entire Lord's Prayer. And when he got to the top step, he looked back down at those 28 steps and saw other people doing the same. And he simply said this, who knows if it is true? Who knows if what I just did made any difference at all? Because when Luther made it to that top, top step, he didn't hear any voice from God. He didn't feel any zap in his heart. He didn't get any surge of conviction all of a sudden. Martin Luther went to the extreme to secure his own assurance of salvation, and he was left disappointed. I ask you again, what would you do for the assurance of your salvation? Would you fast? Would you pray for hours? Would you travel 900 miles on horseback? Would you climb up 28 steps on your knees? I've talked with many of you, and um, I think out of all the issues that, that I find myself talking to GOCers about, the assurance of salvation is easily top five. And so this is a common issue. This is an issue that some of you struggle with, and certainly if, if you don't, you probably know someone who does, and they may look to you for counsel. They may look to you for answers. And so we, we better have some good answers when it comes to how do we know for sure 
that we are saved. Well, you know the end of the story for Martin Luther. Uh, He ends up getting saved, actually, and uh, he gains assurance of salvation, so much so that he is used mightily of God and in a way that really can only be described as history-altering. And so the story ends well for Martin Luther, and it ended well. It ended with salvation, and it ended with assurance of salvation, not because of anything that he did, not because of any ritual that he performed. All those left him empty. It ended well because he looked to the Scriptures, because he looked to the truth of God's Word and found assurance there. And that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to look at God's Word and, and find help in our search, in our quest for the assurance of salvation. Now, assurance is a very complex issue, and there's many passages that speak to this. There are many passages that we could go to, and tonight I'm by no means trying to give you a comprehensive theology of assurance, not trying to give you the the full picture. It's just that as we've been studying Romans, we've come across a passage where the main point is assurance. And so while this is not the comprehensive view, uh, this is a significant piece of the puzzle. So, turn over to Romans chapter 5, and tonight we're going to be in verses 9 to 11. Romans chapter 5, verses 9 to 11. We looked at verses 6 to 8 last week, and tonight we're going to finish off the paragraph. But to get a feel for the context and to get a running start, uh, let's read, starting at the very beginning of this paragraph, verse 6. Romans chapter 5 verse 6, reading to verse 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. In verses 6 to 8, the passage we looked at last week, we saw the love of God on display. Christ died for the ungodly, the sinners. Verse 7 shows us the very best, the apex of human love, and that is dying in the place of another person. But verse 7 is also very realistic in saying that you would only give your life for someone who was good. And even then, you would only scarcely do it. You'd only scarcely dare to do it. Not everyone would give their life for someone. Only some would, and they'd only do it for a good person. But the love of Christ is greater than this love. It surpasses this human love because he gives up his life for sinners. Not when we were his friends, Not even when we were just strangers to him. Not when we were good people, but when we were sinners. This is the deep, deep love of God. And so last week we looked at the depth of God's love. 
The passage this week shows us the strength of God's love. This one talks about the strength, the steadfastness, the rock-solidness, the never-ever-changing nature of God's love. The main point of verses 9 to 11 is assurance, security, confidence in our salvation and in God's love for us. Today we're going to look at three truths about the Christian's assurance of salvation. In verse 9, we come across the word justified. And so our first truth that we have in this passage is that your past justification guarantees your future deliverance. Your past justification guarantees your future deliverance. Verse 9, Uh, We saw that word justified two weeks ago in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. And we learned that justification is a legal term. So think of a courtroom. To be justified is to be acquitted in a legal sense. Declared innocent of all charges. You're the defendant. God is the judge. And when God justifies you, he declares you innocent of all charges. He declares you in the right. God the divine judge has slammed down his gavel and proclaimed not guilty. How? I mean, Paul's already charged in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we know this to be true in our own experience. Take one year of your high school experience, just, just one year, it could be any year, freshman, sophomore, junior, senior. And think about that one year. And think about the friends that you hurt, the mean things that you said, the parents that you disobeyed, the lust in your heart, the pride in your chest. And you know this to be true, that you have sinned and fall short of the glory of God in just one year of your life. And yet you are justified, declared innocent of all charges. How? Keep reading in verse 9. We have now been justified by his blood. Because of the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed, the death he died, the atoning sacrifice that he made, the substitutionary death that he died, you are justified, declared not guilty. Because the penalty of your sin is death, And Jesus died on the cross paying that penalty in full, taking your guilt on himself and fulfilling the punishment. Just out of curiosity, how many of you guys would say that your favorite subject in school is English? Go ahead, raise your hand, nice and high. English. Any actual English majors up in here? (laughs) Few and far between. Most of you? became South Campus majors to escape English so that you would never have to take another class again, or at least one or two, get it done with, and then put it in your rearview mirror. But I wonder, as you were forced to read some books, in high school at least, if you can identify what book has this famous opening line. It was the best of times, It's not up there. (laughs) It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. That book, A Tale 
of two cities. A powerful opening line because it introduces uh, the, the theme of the book, which is pairs, duality, uh, twos. Two cities, France and England, best of times, worst of times, two main characters, Charles Darnay and Sidney Carton, who couldn't be more opposite. Charles Darnay is a Frenchman, actually part of the ruling class in France. And he is sophisticated, refined, successful. He is a gentleman. He is a typical protagonist and hero. Sidney Carton, on the other hand, is an Englishman who is described in the book as a scoundrel and a jackal. He's an alcoholic. He's depressed. He's a good-for-nothing, and he overall just has nothing to live for. Two opposite men, except that they have one really interesting thing in common, which is, how many of you guys actually read Tale of Two Cities? How many of you were supposed to read it and you read it on Wikipedia instead? <laughs> These two men, opposites in every way, except they look the same. Uh, they have the same facial features, the same build, and people easily mistaken them. Well, the story goes that during the French Revolution, where the lower class goes on a killing spree of the upper class, and so naturally, Darnay, a member of the ruling class, is arrested and sentenced to death within 24 hours. But while in prison, Sidney Carton, our, our good-for-nothing, our scoundrel, visits Darnay in prison, tricks him into switching clothes with him, drugs him, drags him out, passes him off to someone else who throws him to a carriage so he can escape. And Carton now is in the prison cell. He is led out to the guillotine, and his also kind of famous last words are this. It is a far, far better thing that I do than I have ever done. It is a far, far better rest that I go to than I have ever known. It's a pretty cool story of someone giving their life for someone else. We, we applaud it. it it's, it's, there, there's something noble about it. But understand that the gospel is a story of an even greater substitution. You see, in A Tale of Two Cities, the scoundrel gives his life for the gentleman. The good-for-nothing gives his life for the hero. But in the gospel, the Son of God gives his life for the scoundrel, for the sinner. And so the good-for-nothing with nothing to live for dies in A Tale of Two Cities, but the Son of God dies in the gospel. That's why Christ's substitutionary death should amaze us and blow us away more than any other story we might hear of someone giving their life for someone else. Let's continue to read in verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Notice the future tense in the second part of the verse. Much more shall we be saved. Huh? I thought I'm already saved. Why, why is this future tense? You, you, I shall be saved? Yes, in a sense, we are already saved. In a sense, it is past. We have been saved from our sins. And that means that when the time comes, when we should face the wrath and absorb the wrath of God, instead, we will be delivered from it. 
wrath is coming. You see, our God is a personal God. He interacts with us in a personal way. And so when, when we have pride and when we break his laws and when we reject him, he takes that very personally. He gets very angry at that. And that's why at the end of verse 9, you have this reference to the wrath of God. His anger burns. And again, we're talking about the future here. This is future wrath. This is wrath that you would face in the future. Right now, God is holding up a dam that holds back his wrath, but one day the dam will come crashing down and the, the wrath will come flowing out. God is even now holding a bow, and that bow is bent with the arrow pointing at your heart and following you throughout your life. And then on that calendar date, when you die, he will release that arrow. Wrath is coming, and many people, most people, don't know it. And they just go about living their life as if they're in no danger. Well, what is the wrath to come? Turn over to Revelation 14.10. And we're just going to look at a verse, maybe a verse and a half, to describe the wrath of God. Revelation 14.10. Revelation, a book about the end times, uh, what happens in the future. Let's read this verse about the future wrath of God. Revelation 14, 10. He will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Torment, fire, sulfur. Verse 11, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. Now, this is the doctrine of hell. Uh, what Revelation calls the lake of fire. The place where sinners will spend eternity in absorbing and drinking down the wrath of God. I think we, we talk about eternity and hell pretty often, and we kind of grow numb to it. So uh, I have a quote from Thomas Watson that gives us a word picture to help us understand what eternity really looks like in hell. Now, Thomas Watson writes, after innumerable millions of years, the wrath of God is as far from ending as it was at the very beginning. If all the earth and sea were sand, and every thousand years a bird should come and take away a grain, it would be a long while ere that vast heap of sand were emptied. But if after all that time the damned might come out of hell, there would be some hope. But this word ever breaks 
the heart. So there is no hope. Once a sinner enters the portal of hell, that is the day that hope ends because he faces the wrath of God. This is frightening news for the unbeliever, but for the Christian, we see that we will be delivered from this wrath. I turn back to Romans 5. We're going to put, put the verse together now. We've picked it apart, now we're going to put it together to see the flow, the argument that Paul is making here. Romans 5, still in verse 9. Let's read it one time straight through. Since therefore we have been we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Did you catch Paul's logic here? Did you catch the flow of his argument? You've got to catch the flow of his argument because that's where our assurance is found. The logic is found in that little but crucial phrase, much more. Much more. Underline it. Highlight it. Circle it. Burn it into your memory because this phrase, much more, is the golden link in this verse and in verse 10. You see it again because it shows us that this is an argument of the greater to the lesser. If you are justified, you will be delivered from the wrath of God. That's the argument. If you are justified, then you will be delivered from the wrath of God. Of course, the judge has already ruled in your favor. He's already slammed down his gavel. He has already declared you innocent of all charges. And so, when you face the judge on that last day, and the first day of your eternity after you die, you will not face his wrath. Justification is a one-time, once-for-all act of God. It is an eternal verdict. If God has declared you right, given you this eternal verdict, then you are right. You are innocent forever. And this surely includes that last day when you will face the judge and you should face his wrath, but instead you will be saved from it. Christian, you are secure. You will be delivered from this wrath because you've already been given the eternal, forever, never-changing verdict of not guilty by the cosmic judge. Because Christ has already taken that guilt on himself. Well, not only that, let's look at the second truth concerning your assurance. Number two, your past reconciliation guarantees your future salvation. Verse 10. Notice that verse 9 and 10 are parallel. They explain each other and they work in tandem together. So let's get additional clarification to what we just read. Verse 10 now. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. In verse 10, we get the language of war. Enemies who are now reconciled. Last week, we were called ungodly, anti-God, pushing God away in verse 6. James 4.4, 4, you adulterous people, 
Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Colossians 1.21, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. All people apart from Christ are enemies of God, hostile to him. And for this, as we saw, God is wrathful toward us. We are enemies with him and he toward us. And yet, verse 10, we are reconciled to God by the death of his son. And that word reconciled refers to a change in status between two parties who are at odds with each other. Once in enmity, once fighting, now all that's left is peace, friendship. We saw this in verse 1. We have peace with God. We saw this in verse 2, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We have access to God, we're brought close to God, we're made to stand in his presence by his grace. Just like in verse 9, when we also looked at justification, we see that this reconciliation is only possible through Jesus. Look at that short phrase, by the death of his son. That's the means. The cross is the bridge that sinners cross to get to God and be reconciled to him. The cross is the great hammer that shatters whatever dividing wall stands between us and God. And you know, this little phrase, death of his son, as I was studying this, really struck me afresh. Um, because, I think I'm just a little sensitive recently, because uh, I uh, recently had a son. I have three sons. And the thought of, of one of them dying uh, is just really unimaginable to me. Just, just a, a really, really far-fetched thought. I mean, we talk about substitution and giving your life for someone else. Uh, my three little boys, any one of them, uh, I would give my life for them in a heartbeat. Wouldn't even have to think about it. And the thing is, I, I, I got three sons. John 3.16 says that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. I've known my boys for just four years with Nene, three years with Jordan, and one month with Owen. Father knew and loved his son since eternity past. And yet, Isaiah 53.10 says, it pleased the Lord to crush his son. This is the cost of reconciliation that God has bought. And now notice how, how these these verbs that we've been looking at are passive. Five passive verbs. Verse 9. We have now been justified. We shall be saved. Verse 10. We were reconciled. We shall be saved by his life. And then lastly in verse 11, 
We have now received the reconciliation. We are passive. God is acting on us. This is God making the initiative. We didn't sit down and write out the peace treaty. God is the reconciler. He took the initiative. Before I give this next illustration, let me just clarify that I love Caleb Ting. Okay. Caleb Ting is my friend. Uh, we're we're going to talk after today, uh, after GOC tonight. Uh, so I love Caleb Ting. But let's say I didn't love him. Say I don't like that guy. Gets on my nerves all the time. And so one day I finally had it. And I punch him in the face. Well, in that scenario, after the, the punching has taken place, who should say sorry? Uh, Caleb, now with his black eye, because you know. <laughs> what if he now comes up to me and says, man, I know you don't like me, I uh, had a sneaking suspicion. It became obvious when you socked me in the face. <laughs> and uh, I, I'm not sure why there's this tension between us, but hey, um, I just want to be friends. And, and I'll do whatever it takes. Just, just let me know what I got to do uh, to make this right. Well, you would just think Caleb's like the greatest guy in the world. He is the greatest Caleb we have here at GOC. <laughs> Because you wouldn't expect the offended party to take the initiative. And yet that's the truth that we have in this text. God, the offended party, takes the initiative to reach out and reconcile his enemies. When we had pushed him away, when we had sinned, when we had rebelled against him, when we had made him our enemy, that's when he said, I'll, I'll do whatever it takes to make this right. I'll do whatever it takes to reconcile us. And he did it. He put his son on a cross. He paid the highest price to bring enemies to himself. So, if he has done this great act of love in reconciling his enemies, then what? Then we're assured. Let's keep reading. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. The life here, we have to understand, is speaking of Christ's risen, resurrected life. His life after his death. His life after he's ascended into heaven, because we're still in the realm of the future, right? We're talking about the future. We shall be saved by his life. And so the argument is here, if the dying Savior reconciled us to God, the resurrected and living Savior keeps us reconciled to God. We'll see this in Romans 6, 9. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. He died once never to die again. He lives eternally in this resurrected, ascended state. And we, 
are in him. We are united to him. And so if he lives forever, then we also live forever. And in this resurrected eternal life, we read in scripture that he continually and forever makes intercession for us. Hebrews 7, 25, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Go back to the courtroom. Satan is the prosecutor. Revelation 12, 10 says that Satan, night and day, accuses the brethren, but Hebrews 7, 25, Jesus, the, def- uh, the, 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 the defending attorney, night and day, continually, forever intercedes on our behalf. He and his wounds plead our case that we can be right with God because he has traded lives with us and he has died the death that was our punishment. So once again, let's look at the verse as a whole to see the logic. It's the same logic as verse 9, same key phrase that acts as a signpost pointing us to what kind of argument Paul is making, much more. So same argument of the greater to the lesser. Here's the point, and here is our assurance. If God reconciled us as enemies, he will certainly save us as his friends. That's the point. That's the assurance. If God reconciled us while we were enemies, then he will surely, most certainly, save us as his friends. If he already did the most difficult thing, then he will do the less difficult thing. The most difficult thing, as we saw, is giving up his son. And that's what it took to reconcile us. But the less difficult thing is to save us by the life of his son which doesn't require his son dying. God proved the greatest love and did the most difficult thing when he sent his son to die for sinners and for enemies. And if he did that, then he certainly will do the less difficult thing in ensuring that his now friends come all the way to heaven. This should be a great encouragement to our assurance. If your past and future salvation are secure by God. He did the most difficult thing. He will do the less difficult thing. If they're both secure, then we can feel secure in between. As you may know, the process of adoption is a long one with many obstacles along the way. And I've actually been working with a couple uh, at our church who are trying to adopt someone and trying to work through it with them and talk them through it. Uh, It's all new to me, but I'm I'm learning things about it. So just to begin the process of adoption, you have to go through at least three intensive, what they call home study interviews uh, with a social worker, and it includes a rundown of your home. Uh, It includes 10 hours of class, a ton of paperwork, including financials, medicals, employment verifications, fingerprint clarifications from the FBI, Department of Justice, and Child Abuse Organization. You need reference letters. You need to sign numerous contracts, and all of this has to be officially notarized. Uh, To adopt a child in, in America domestically, it can take a year 
to two and a half years. So if you, if you are able to adopt a kid within a year, that's considered fast. And if you want to adopt internationally, uh, it can take seven to eight years. And the entire process of adoption costs an average of $28,000, which doesn't include any traveling that you might do. Uh, so you can imagine that the, these parents who, who do adopt kids just have a huge heart, right? I mean, they've just invested so much in this. They, they love that child, and uh, they've, they've, they've proved it in how much they've invested and how much they've sacrificed. So can you imagine, what if the, the parents are finally able to adopt, they finally pick up their son or, or their daughter and, and bring him or her home, and they walk up the front porch together, open the door, mom and dad go in, and that little child is about to come in as well and say, whoa, 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 what are you doing? <laughs> You're not coming in here. You, you stay outside. You, you can fend for yourself. You do whatever you want, but uh, you're, you're not here. You're, you're not with us. I, you can't even imagine that because of how much love they've already demonstrated, because of how much difficulty they've already gone through. If they loved that kid so much that they would go through all of that process of adoption for him or her, then certainly they're going to welcome them into their home. And yet, sometimes we approach God thinking that, uh, that he, he'll kick us out of the home. I commit this sin. I did this again. And I'm out. I'm out. I was saved, but now uh, God could never love me for what I've done. But here is our assurance that, that he's already gone to the uttermost to show you that he loves you. He gave his son to reconcile you. And that's a love that you can stand secure in. That's a love that you can bank on. And so, in looking for assurance, look to the great, great love that God has already proven to you in justifying you and in reconciling you. But maybe you are here and you have no assurance of salvation for a reason. And that reason is you're not saved. So I also want to be careful here not to give anybody a, a false assurance of salvation. Uh, this is not a, you know, welcome to GOC, we love you, and God loves you, and that's it. Everybody's saved at the end. Uh, so I wouldn't want anyone to walk away here who is not truly in Christ thinking that they are. So maybe you're here and you, you are struggling with assurance. You, you are scared of what's to come after this life. You hear about the wrath of God and you don't feel assured that you won't face that wrath and be delivered from that wrath, but you are fearful that that wrath may be poured out on you. And if that's you, uh, then I would plead with you tonight that this is the most important matter that you need to attend to. Maybe you know a little bit about Jesus, maybe you know a little bit about the gospel, but you don't know Jesus 
And I would plead with you to come to him fully. To forsake your sin and whatever it is that's keeping you from coming to Jesus and cling to him. Run to him and you will find this great assurance that we've been talking about tonight. You will find this great love. You will find that if you come to him, he will hold you fast. So we've seen that your past justification guarantees your future deliverance. We've also seen that your past reconciliation guarantees your future salvation. And number three, your secure salvation guarantees your present joy. Let's read verse 11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We talked about these passive verbs. Well, the end of verse 11 is really, really passive. Paul doesn't just say we were reconciled like he did in verse 10. He goes further. He stresses our passive role even more. We have now received the reconciliation. Reconciliation is a gift. It is received by us. And as a gift, there is a ring of finality here. It is given and it cannot be taken back. We have now received reconciliation. It is ours, period. It is secure. And I love how these verses, this verse, verse 11, begins with more than that. You're made right with God. You're made his friend. He's given you his one and only son. You have security and assurance in his son. And more than that, we also rejoice. And this is just such a fitting, uh, fitting, fitting uh, closing thought to this paragraph here and to all that we've seen in the past three weeks, uh, we rejoice. Actual, real happiness, excitement, exuberance over what God has done. That jump, that jolt in your heart, like during your senior year when you checked online and you saw, congratulations, you've been accepted to UCLA. Like when you got that phone call you got the job. Like in the near future, June 2019, when the Golden State Warriors win their third championship in a row, completing the three-peat. Like that future day when you stand at the altar and your, your best friend and the one you love the most in this life says, I do. Like that moment when you get to hold your baby for the first time. Uh, this is real joy. We rejoice. We sing for joy. And when we think about the, the reconciliation that we have received from God through Jesus Christ, uh, you, you just can't receive that cold. You can't receive that emotionless. This fills our heart with joy. I was catching up with a friend who went to GOC with me a long time ago when we were here, and uh, we're just reflecting back on our time here and uh, laughing about you know, how ridiculous we were. And then I, I guess I asked a serious question, and I just was curious, and I asked her, what do you think was the greatest takeaway from GOC? What, what was the greatest lesson 
that you learned during your four years at GOC? And it took her a while to answer. She thought about it for, for quite some time. Because I think there's a lot of things she could have said, but she finally settled on this. She said, I learned to take joy in my salvation. It's a good lesson. And it's a lesson that I hope you all take away by the time you're done. Uh, if you can say that you have great joy, that you rejoice in your salvation on the day that you graduate here from UCLA and you turn that tassel, I will be the proud father standing in the stands with just a tear rolling down my eye. Because the joy of salvation leads to something. Man, if, you're, if your heart is full of joy and excitement over what God has done in Jesus Christ, that's going to change you. It's going to transform you. It's going to make you live so differently. And let me, let me close by giving you just one way that, that having the joy of salvation changes in your life. So turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I want to give you a specific way that having this joy is going to change your life and even, I hope, will change your life in the next few weeks here at GOC. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And let's read verses 19 to 20. Starting in verse 19. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So here we see that we're not only reconciled, but, verse 19 we have been entrusted with the message of reconciliation. We don't just enjoy reconciliation. We don't just rejoice in reconciliation. We speak about reconciliation. We tell others how they can experience this joy as well. And then verse 20, we are called ambassadors for Christ. We are his representatives carrying his message Simply put, if you have joy in your salvation, you will tell others about it. And we have some opportunities coming up here in the next few weeks at GOC. Uh, we're going to, uh, in, uh, f on Friday of week four, uh, have one of the biggest evangelistic events that we have. It's fall barbecue. And it's here that we're going to preach the gospel. And so we, we would love it if you would invite your friends who don't know the gospel to maybe hear it for the first time. Uh, friends who are interested in Christianity to, to, to get a, a glimpse into what we believe and the salvation that is available to them and the joy that's available to them. Uh, like Jenny just shared her testimony tonight, we're going to have two other people share their testimony from GOC. And so we're going to see a, a couple of stories of God's grace as well. And maybe the most valuable part of fall barbecue uh, is, 
is the time after we dismiss. And uh, you guys just sitting up there and having conversations with those non-Christians. Maybe the friend that you brought, maybe you need a new, meet a new one, and uh, you talk about Jesus. You talk about their soul. You answer questions they might have. Look at the Bible together. Uh, and, and in all those conversations, we hope and we pray that God will reconcile some, many, to himself. And the second opportunity that we have that's also coming up, it's uh, Saturday of week five. We're trying this for the first time. We're doing a basketball tournament. It's going to be an outreach-focused basketball tournament in the Student Activity Center. And so we have some prizes that we're going to give away. Uh, We have... Lakers tickets that were generously donated by an elder at Grace Church. Uh, A couple months ago, I bought a basketball on eBay signed by Steph Curry, knowing that one day I would have to part with it. (laughs) And that time is nigh. Uh, It it has, uh, it's it's found a nice little spot right on my shelf there, but uh, that also will be given away as a prize. And again, we're going to share the gospel, and again... Maybe the most important part is the follow-up conversations afterwards. Hey, what'd you think about that? Hey, do you have any questions about that? Hey, I'd love to talk to you more about that. Uh, we'd like to come to GOC and learn more about that. Um, so, so here we just have another really great opportunity to be ambassadors for Christ and to, to live out uh, this overflowing joy that we have in being saved. So I encourage you to, to, to be there and to have a mindset of carrying this message of reconciliation.